prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. A friend of mine said, you ever want to leave? And I say, every other day. If it weren't for Jesus, I'd be a Buddhist. It's easier. They don't have diets and they smile all the time. <laughs> and they don't have to repent either. Uh, do you know the story of Robert Robinson who wrote that hymn? He left. He just said, I've had it and walked. Years later, he made a lot of money. Devil pays good. And years later, he was in a carriage with a lady friend of his, and they were driving by a Pentecostal church. And the windows were open that evening, and he heard the song we just sang coming through the windows. And he broke down and began to weep. His lady friend asked the problem, and he said, I wrote that, and I'd give everything I have if I could know now what I knew then. <laughs> Wish I'd been there. I would have had some good news for him. I would tell him, you may be left, but you don't get away from his love. And he never stopped loving you. He never let you go. And he never stopped praying for you. I'm sure she didn't tell him that. Somebody should have, and it ticks me off that nobody did. But I'm old, and old people are already ticked off about being old. <laughs> So, so it takes very little to tick us off. I love you guys. I pray for this church daily. I've watched. You've gone through hard stuff and good stuff. Uh, you've gone through pain and tears and laughter and joy. And I had lunch with your pastor. Man, let me tell you something. You treat him right. Because I know 15 churches that would hire him in a second and pay more than you are. <laughs> Just want you to know that. <laughs> but thank you for having me back. Um, a lot of churches won't. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, I appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, we're here, and we're not here because we're good, but because we're yours. Speak to our minds that we may not be silly Christians. Speak to our hearts that we might not be cold Calvinists. Speak to our vocal cords and our feet and our hands that we might leave this place and the world might hear the laughter of the redeemed. Forgive the one who teaches this morning his sins because they are many. We would see Jesus and him only, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
I could tell you the reasons, but all of my life, I felt on the outside looking in and nobody would let me in. My mentor, Fred Smith, and I'm gonna quote him later because I always do. Fred Smith had a withered hand and he said when he was a little boy, he would go out into the woods behind his house and he would say, and he was the wisest man I ever knew, he would say, there's something they're not telling me. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to find out what it was. Me too, but for me, it was more existential. I just wanted them to let me in. Um, the first time I got one of my phony doctorates, and all of my doctorates are phony. <laughs> I'm not even a nurse, but you can call me either that, Dr. Brown, or your eminence, I will answer. I'll answer to both. When I got my first doctorate, the board of trustees at the college wrote me a letter and they had said that they had heard some of my jokes about people with doctorates. And they said, we have voted unanimously to give you a doctor of letters. Uh, but uh, we want to know if you'll accept it because it would be embarrassing to us and embarrassing to you if when you came here to speak for our graduation, you turned it down. Well, it was a serious matter. I prayed and fasted for at least two minutes. <clears throat> and I wrote them back and I said, no, I'm so pleased and I'll accept it. I was just a little boy on the outside of the house throwing rocks because nobody would let him in. <laughs> it's called a cancel culture, and it's awful when it happens, but you know what's even worse when you're in with the cool kids and they don't want you anymore? When you're in with them and they want to kick you out, and that's what Paul experienced. I mean, he had it all. He had an education that would blow you away. He had prestige. He was associated, even if he wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin court, he had been raised in the highest echelons and then Jesus came along and screwed it up. So he got canceled, but he found a new bunch and he could run with them. And then we're going to find out in this text as we read it this morning that they tried to kick him out of there. So Paul understood what a canceled culture is. And you can hear it. And if you've been studying Galatians, and I understand you have, <clears throat> what he says in the first chapter, a Christian ought not say. They had to soften the language in the English to make it passable. I mean, he is not a happy camper about being censored. But listen to the second chapter, and I'm going to start reading in the first verse of the second chapter. And this morning, we're going to look at 10 verses there. This is what Paul uh, writes. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. 
I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running and had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were willing to do. Now, in just a moment, we're going to look at uh, the gospel and her ugly sister, religion. But before we do that, I want to go down just one quick side road, and it's going to be a horrible exegesis of this text. Please note that Paul starts out by saying, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Now, I'm far waiting for God, but 14 years is ridiculous. <laughs> Have you read Beckett's uh, Godot book, play, about the two guys that are waiting for Godot and he never comes, and they keep talking profound things to each other. I'll tell you something, I can't identify with that. And you know why? Because I would have left after five minutes. I'm OCD, and I've struggled with that. I don't wait for anything, and I don't like waiting, and I don't like lines. I Beckett must have had friends that were a whole lot different than me. I was reading this morning uh, from the uh, quartets um, inspired by St. John. And the author said this, that he learned to hope in the dark, but he didn't hope for specifics because his specifics would be the wrong thing. <laughs> well, I'm not that spiritual. Do you have your Godot? The son who hasn't come home yet? 
the wife who said she didn't love you anymore, the healing you've been praying for because of the abuse you suffered, the loneliness that you know because your friends have turned away. Do you have your, you know, wait and watch and see what God does? I think it was Baird. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it's wise, so listen up. He was asked, after all of his years of study and writing on the subject of history, what he had learned. And he said, I've learned four things. First, I've learned that those whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Secondly, I have learned that the bee fertilizes the flower from which it robs. And thirdly, I've learned that when it gets dark enough, you can see the stars. And finally, I have learned that the wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. I'm old too. And I've learned the same thing. You wait, you watch. God is faithful. In the dark, the light will come. I've seen the rest of the story over and over again before most of you were ever born. And it's all right to name it and to wait for it and to trust him to give it. Thought you ought to know. All right, we're going to be talking about the gospel. We ought to ask, what in the world is the gospel? If I were smart, I'd give you a long definition. If I'd studied all the theology books, I would spend a lot of time lecturing you on the profound implications of the gospel. But I'm none of those things, and so I'm going to tell you in one word, so listen up, and it's this forgiveness. That's it. You're forgiven if you belong to Christ. If you don't and you go to him, he will. That's the good news. And yes, forgiven for what's in your mind right now. You were just saying to yourself, well, I know that if I told a white lie, but you don't know what I've done. Yeah, forgiven. Forgiven completely. I'm not against religion. Some are pretty good and some of them are pretty bad, but any religion is better than no religion. And you know why? Because the genuine can be tested. And if you have the wrong one and you care, eventually you're going to know it and you're going to look for the right one. So I'm kind of a religion guy. I'm the most religious person you've ever met. I lecture religious students on how to be more religious. I write religious books. I do religious broadcasts. I do religious conferences. I'm so religious, I'm sick of myself. <laughs> so I'm not against religion. I make my living at religion. 
Richard Pratt, and I've heard him say it a number of times, that if you make your living in religion, you're going to lose one or the other. Well, so far, I haven't lost either one. So I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a religion guy, but religion is different than the gospel. And God has given us the Holy Spirit so we might know the difference. Fred Spith, who I mentioned to you before, was one time uh, called to be with a good friend of his who had been given a terminal diagnosis and was to die soon. And his friend Jim had invited his other close friends to join him around his deathbeds, and he appointed each one of them with a job description. One, he uh, wanted to oversee his finances. One, who was a lawyer, he wanted to look after his family. One, who was a theologian, he wanted to make sure that what he believed in this dark time uh, he would understand and be able to live with. And he didn't give a job description to Fred. And Fred said to him, Jim, what is it <coughs> you want me to do? Jim said, I want you to be a hogwash filter. Well, he didn't exactly say hogwash filter, but I can't tell you what he said in a sermon at a Presbyterian church. And so Fred listened to what the other said and decided what was good and what was bad, what was usable and what wasn't usable. Well, you've been given a hogwash filter too. It's called the Holy Spirit. There is a real danger because of religion that we'll take with the best intentions that we'll take the wine that Jesus gave us and turn it into water. We do it all the time. Religious people do it all the time. <coughs> we become self-righteous. We stick our nose in the air. We judge others. And we forget it's not about that. We create our rituals and our prayers and we write our books and we build our buildings. None of that is bad unless you forget that's not what it's about. Listen to me, it's about forgiveness. And you ought to be able to tell the difference. And I'm here to help. First, uh, religion is hardly ever offensive. The gospel almost always is offensive. We had my friend Dan Allender on our talk show not too long ago, and I've known him for a bunch of years, and I love Dan. And Dan said on our talk show, he said, Steve, I don't know anybody in the country who offends more people than you do. And so I said, oh yeah, what about you? That's the kettle calling the pot black. You're, you're worse than I am. You make me look like an uptight Pharisee. And he laughed, and we both offend people, and you know why? Because we're forgiven. And people who are forgiven irritate people who don't think they need it. 
You say, Steve, would you repeat that? I will, for the slower among us, a bit slower. Forgiven people irritate those who don't think they need it. I, as I said, I love your pastor. You are so very fortunate. We're going to be good friends. And um, he was kidding me at lunch. He said, I'm probably going to have, he said, I want my people to hear you, but I'm probably going to have to explain you the Sunday after you leave. <laughs> and I thought of Randy Pope. I, I served on the preaching staff at Perimeter Church in Atlanta for a long time, a couple of years. And I was up there a lot. Randy said I didn't have to be nice, didn't have to go to meetings, just get on a plane, fly in, preach Saturday night and Sunday morning, get on the plane and go home. Now that sounded like a really good gig to me, so I did it. And he told me I could say anything that I wanted. Um, one time he called me and he said, we're in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments. And he said, you don't have to do it, but if you want to participate in it, you would get the eighth one, thou shalt not steal. You want to do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll teach on the eighth commandment. And the Sunday before I came, he said, Steve's going to be here next week. And we're, and we're always glad when he's here. But he said, listen to me, no matter what Steve tells you, stealing is wrong. <laughs> I'm not antinomian, <laughs> uh, but I get what he was saying because forgiven people, and I'm forgiven, makes me sound arrogant. And I am sometimes, but not all the time. If you're the son of the king who runs the place, and you live in the big house and not in the servants' quarters, and that's what I do, it's hard to be humble. If you've been anointed, if you've been loved without reservation, if the worst things you've ever done have been forgiven, it's hard to grovel. Let me... Let me read to you uh, a quote from a professor at Grove City College. I got one of my phony doctorates from Grove City College. <laughs> His name is uh, Clark Truman, and he wrote this in uh, an article in First Things Magazine. And the title of the article is How Elite Evangelicals Have Failed. And he writes this, the Enlightenment did not simply rebel against old ways of thinking about knowledge, it rebelled also against the moral teachings of Christianity. The mainstream of modern thought has deemed doctrines of human sinfulness and Christ's atonement incompatible with human autonomy and freedom. This moral and political objection to Christianity is the dominant motif of today's culture despisers. Unlike the canons of scholarship, the objection that Christianity promotes subservience, injustice, and hatred cannot be accommodated by Christians. 
Reason is compatible with faith, but the opposite of humility before God and obedience to his commandments is antithetical to it. What Truman was saying in that article is that scholars, evangelical scholars, with PhDs from Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford, think that if they are superb in their scholarship, they will be allowed on the playground of pagans. And they won't be. And they kid themselves if they will be. Now, I'm all for putting the packaging in a way that makes a difference for the church. I think we ought to not change the subject. My shoe's coming off. That would be... And I'll tell you, if I trip, I'm going to sue you guys. If you... You got your bills paid and you got some money now. So, what was I saying? Oh, I'm for... I am for putting the packaging right, but don't go too far because you're never going to please them. Because forgiven people, and it's in the DNA, irritate those who don't think they need it. And, and so go out and irritate somebody. Nicely lovingly and in a kind way, but go out and do it because you're going to do it anyway just for your existence. Did you hear about the young man that got on the airplane and sat next to a pastor and the pastor was reading the Bible? And he looked at it, stuck his nose up in the air and said, I don't believe that. Pastor kept reading. He said, oh man, did you hear what I said? I don't believe any of that. That's nonsense. Fairy tale for superficial thinkers. He kept reading the Bible. He said, are you listening to me? I said, that's nonsense. And the pastor closed his Bible and looked over and smiled at him and said, son, would you go to hell more quietly? <laughs> we'll take that out of the tape. I, could talk forever on this, but we've got we to keep going another way. Religion is into power. The gospel is into weakness. You've got to see in that text where Paul is, uh, is hated by some people who say they believe the same things he believes. He's being censored and he's irritating because of the gospel. And if you read that first chapter of Galatians before you go to bed, make sure it's a couple of hours before you go to bed because he is really harsh about that kind of thing. But the second's just as true as the first. Religion is into power and the gospel is into weakness. Let me give you another quote. I wrote three on this piece of paper because I can't memorize that much anymore. This is from Andre Nouwen. Oh my. He's Catholic, but he smells like Jesus. And if he were Presbyterian, I would say he's Presbyterian and he smells like Jesus. Uh, I've read everything he's ever, he wrote the book, The Wounded Healer, and his diaries are so 
profound, they blow you away. But this is one thing that he wrote. He said, now listen up. I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. The leaders of the future will be those who dare to proclaim their irrelevance to the contemporary world and to do it as a divine vocation. Martin Luther one time was lecturing and somebody asked a question and said, Dr. Luther, are you saying that we don't bring anything to the table? He said, you must have misunderstood me. Of course we bring something to the table. We bring our sins. To play on Luther's words, that's all we bring to the table of the world too. But we do it with joy because we're forgiven. I get so tired of go out and change the world for Jesus. Listen, I can't change my world. I can't fix myself. I certainly can't fix them. But I'll show. I'll be there in the places of pain and hunger and fear and loneliness and being marginalized. I'll be there with nothing. Except Jesus. And that's enough. Something else here, too. Uh, and, you, you know, I'm, I hope they're putting on the screen the verses that reference what I'm teaching you. If they aren't, go home and write your own sermon. <laughs> but thirdly, religion looks for the favor of man. The gospel looks for the flavor, favor of God. Barry Goldwater, <clears throat> and that's when I became a Republican. That's how old I am. It was because of an authority problem. It had nothing to do with principles. I was at a graduate school in Boston, and professors kept putting Goldwater down. And I said to a friend, I don't know Goldwater or a thing about him. If he says one more thing, I'm going to become a Republican. And he did, and I did, and now I'm so conservative, I think Rush Limbaugh was a communist. <laughs> but during that presidential campaign that Goldwater ran, he went to Tennessee and spoke against the Tennessee Valley Authority, which employed and kept the economic engines of Tennessee running. And he came to Florida and he spoke against Social Security, and he went to Washington, and he spoke against committees, and a senator friend of his said to him, Barry, I know you have to go through that field where that bull is, but every time you walk through it, you don't have to wave a red flag in the bull's face. We have to walk through that field too, and we can't help it. Dylan said, who do you serve? If you serve him, 
you're favored. And you don't, and this is the good news, you don't get the favor because you're serving him. Martin Luther said this, God does not look for people who love him. He creates them. How about that? You don't have to serve him in order to get his favor. You serve him because you have his favor. So everybody's trying to please the institutions of our world, the organizations of our world, and we don't have to because of the favor of God. Technically, it's called imputation. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. And then there's one more thing, and I'm tired too. <laughs> we'll land this plane. And it's this. Religion is about them. The gospel is about us. I'm big on theology, uh, and I think it's very important. Systematic biblical theology, and I'm reformed, is so an anchor for us, but it's not the main thing. There's a difference between propositions and experience. And the experience defines and focuses the propositions. Let me recommend a good book to you. I asked him if I recommended it to people. He's my friend. If I, Brent Hansen, and he's in California, I said, would you give me a percentage of how many books I could sell? And he said, not, in a, not a chance. But it's still a great book. It's the best book I've ever read on self-righteousness. It's called The Truth About Us. <laughs> one of the things he told me that he was saying to his wife one time, he was saying, uh, well, Jesus got angry and he kicked the money changers out of the temple. And she smiled and said, honey, don't you get it? You're the money changers. And he opens the book in a wonderful way. He said, dear reader, we think we are good people. Jesus says we're not good people. That's our problem. Sincerely, Brent. P.S. The rest of this book is a P.S. You got to go where he goes, the dark place. You got to look at the dirt and the fear and the, and the pain and the story that isn't pretty. But when you do, you can be hugged forgiven, live forever. And then that orange wood, Presbyterians will speak in tongues and dance, and we don't do either one very well. No, I'm not a charismatic, don't send me letters. But I envy them. If you're sick, do you want a Calvinist or a charismatic to pray for you? Think about that. 
the joy, the reality of the experience, not the proposition. You're really forgiven. How about that, sports fans? You, I'm cramming for finals. This is a sense of comfort to me to think I'm going to live forever. And you are too. He will never, ever, no matter where you go, what you do, what you say, who you hurt, will say, I've had it with you, ever. You're his. That's the gospel. It's about forgiveness. I, uh, uh, Tom Wood, who's a dear friend of mine, and your pastor knows him and has had lunch with him, and we both admire him, sent me a thing, and I thought it would be wise for me um, to, to help you because everybody wants inner peace. And so as the, as the worship people start making their way back up here, let me, let, me, uh, let me help you with the inner peace thing. He said he got this from a friend. Um, I was watching, he writes, the Dr. Phil show, and I found peace. Dr. Phil said that the way to achieve inner peace was to finish all things one had started. So I looked around the house to see things that I'd started, but I hadn't finished. I finished off two bottles of wine a bottle of Baileys, a package of Oreos, the remainder of the Valium prescription, the rest of the cheesecake, some saltines, and a box of chocolates. You have no idea how much inner peace I feel <laughs> right now. <laughs> I don't know who that was, but that dog's not going to hunt. On the other hand, when that dog doesn't hunt, if you'll go to Jesus and tell him, he'll love you and forgive you. And if you listen to what I taught you this morning, you know that's the gospel. You think about that. Amen.